First Peter chapter 1. I began the sermon last Sunday by mentioning two individuals, Clement of Rome and Polycarp of Smyrna. I said that they had been inspired by the words of Peter's letter. I failed uh, to tell you who these men were. I thought it's only right that as we begin today that I would do it, what I should have done last Sunday. Clement of Rome, tradition has it, is the same man mentioned in Philippians chapter 4, verse number 3, in which Paul says, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. According to Tertullian, early 3rd century, Clement was ordained by Peter. He's known to have been a leading member of the church in Rome in the late 1st century. It is said that he was imprisoned under the emperor Trajan, and while he was in this prison colony, there he evangelized among the prisoners. Um, He was executed by being tied to an anchor and then thrown into the sea. Polycarp... um, Tradition holds was actually a disciple or taught by John the Apostle. Known for his long life, among other things, he was burned at the stake for refusing to burn incense to Caesar. These two men are really our main connections between the apostles and the church that followed afterwards. And as men who lived in a time of persecution and martyrdom, uh, the writings of Peter with regard to suffering that which was addressed to society, strangers and aliens, was important to them and instructional to them. I trust that it will be to us as well. Well, thus far we have looked at the opening portion of this letter, the author, the recipients, the greeting, and then the word of thanksgiving, which is actually one sentence from verse 3 to verse number 12. As we saw last week, beginning in verse number 13, the opening portion, in fact, was not merely sort of fluff that, that isn't just like, you know, blah, 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 you know, hello, it's me, and then let's get to the really good stuff. In fact, in the first 12 verses, Peter sets the table, if I may use that expression, for what follows in the rest of the letter. What Peter is talking about from the first verse onward is about this issue, what does it mean to be a Christian? If you look at the first verse, to God's elect, strangers in the world, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. And as we've seen in what follows in the statement of thanksgiving, verses 3 to 12, um, what Peter has to say flows from this opening declaration of the fact that this audience, his recipients, have in fact a new life. They have been chosen, they have been sanctified, and this is for obedience by the sprinkling of blood. Something that we would do well to keep in mind is that in Peter's thinking, there is no separation between character and performance. And so we find, beginning in verse 13, And through the rest of the letter, a series of imperatives. Verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. This is done within the double context of preparing your minds for action, or as the King James, I think, puts it better, girding up the loins of your mind, and then being self-controlled. The second imperative, verse 15, is be holy. And then in verse 17, live in reverent fear. We should also remember that in Peter's writings, 
practices reflect a transformed life. And the transformed life is itself the result of God's kindness and initiative. In the passage that we looked at last week and what we will look at today, beginning at verse number 22 and going to chapter 2, verse 3, we will find two crucial features that if you miss this, then I would say much of what Peter says after this will not make the sense that it should. Two crucial features regarding what it means to be a Christian. Conversion and the power of the word. What I want to do is first look, we'll go through the passage and then come back and look at these, these dual themes that are so crucial to what Peter is writing. Follow along, if you would, beginning at verse 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. You may note, and some of your translations may have, that in fact, uh, in verse 24, uh, Peter is quoting from Isaiah chapter 40, and then in verse number 3 we have echoes of what we read in Psalm 34. I must confess that as I began to study, I got stumped on one word, that sort of held me up for quite a while. It's the word purified. Specifically, the way that Peter writes it, it seems to imply that the recipient, the believer, that's us, have we purified ourselves by obeying the truth and the smacks of salvation by works, that is, winning God's favor by what we do. Context is always important, but it's also very helpful. Because if we back up a few verses to verse number 14, we find, As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. In response to the work of the Spirit in our lives, in which we become the children of God, in which we are set apart, we are to reject the practices of disobedience, what Peter calls the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance, we are to obey the truth. We are to obey the call to be holy in all that we do. So this is what Peter has in mind back in verse number 22 when he says, now that you have purified yourself, he's not suggesting for a moment that we have the capacity to do this on our own. But as we have come to faith in Christ, there needs to be a conscious thought in our minds that we are separating ourselves from a former way of life And now we are living in a new way. This is not something we can do on our own or that we have done on our own. We have to go back again to the first verse of this letter, uh, or second verse actually, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling by his blood. This is what God has done. We are now called to separate ourselves, to be holy in all we do, and to purify ourselves by obeying the truth. And we do this because 
We are children of God, since you call on a father. Verse number 17. So then what follows in verse number 22 makes perfect sense. So that you have sincere love for your brothers. If God is our father, then we are brothers and sisters. And we are to have sincere love for one another. By the way, the word that Peter uses is familiar enough. It is the word Philadelphia, brotherly love. Many would expect the typical word agape, which speaks of caring for others without reciprocation. Uh, But Peter doesn't use that word. I think in part because in church we are to love each other and there is to be reciprocation. We should not imagine that in the church that agape is to dominate, that we are to love each other and have no expectation of reciprocation. In the church, we are brothers and sisters. We are to love each other. It isn't to be a one-way street. If this is the case, then why does he write what he does at the end of verse number 22? Love one another deeply from the heart. Let's be clear about something. This is a command. Okay, Grammatically, this is an imperative. By the way, this is something Peter will say again in chapter 4, verse 8. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. We are commanded here to love each other deeply, strenuously, persistently. And why are we commanded to do this? Because it doesn't come automatically. It requires effort. It requires a lot of effort. It requires ongoing effort. Some might protest and say that Peter is being unreasonable here. Some would say, I can't do this. You don't know what you're asking. You don't know the people you're asking me to love deeply from the heart. Well, he doesn't end at verse number 22. Look at verse 23. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Because of conversion, because of being born again, we are new people. Because of the power of the word of God. Therefore, we are to love each other and we are to understand that, yes, on our own we are not capable of this, but we have been given new life, the life of God. And we are to love each other deeply. Verse number 24, to be honest, as wonderful as it is, seems somewhat out of place. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. And the grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord stands forever. This seems out of place unless we realize that Peter, or what Peter is trying to tell his readers. In our mortality, we are like grass, we are like flowers, which have beauty for a time, but only for a time. In contrast, we have been given new life. We have been given something that is not temporary, perishable. We've been given something that is eternal, that is imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. And as Peter says at the end of this chapter, this is the message. This is the word that was preached to them. Then we come to chapter 2, remembering that there were no chapter divisions as Peter wrote this. And we hear the connective word, therefore, that is for this reason, Consequently, because of that, therefore, rid yourselves of all malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. For what reason? 
Because of what? Because of what Peter has just said. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. Which is connected to what he wrote earlier, that we are to be holy in all we do. Be holy because I am holy. And we cannot forget the first verse of our text today, verse 22. Love one another deeply from the heart. If, in fact, we have sincere love for our brothers and sisters, if we love each other deeply from the heart, then we, there's a, a real incompatibility to have malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind at the same time. You can't do that. If we love each other, then malice should not, one might even say cannot, be present. So we're to get rid of these things. And the word that is used, it's actually a figure of speech, meaning to take your clothes off. You know, these things are the clothes that you are wearing before you become a Christian. Now you are to take them off, and in their place you put on love. So take these things off. But what are these things? Malice, the desire to harm other people. Oftentimes hiding behind apparently good reasons. That's why it is so malicious, because it's not self-evident oftentimes. In chapter 2, verse 16, Peter says, Live as free men, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Deceit is the deliberate attempt to mislead people by telling lies. Chapter 3, verse 10, Quoting from Psalm 34, for whoever would see life or would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. Then there is hypocrisy when people pretend to be different from what they really are. It's very similar to malice in that people seem to be acting from good motives when in reality they are motivated by something else. It isn't evident in the NIV But these three, malice, deceit, and hypocrisy, in Greek are all plurals. All malice, all deceit, and all hypocrisy. The King James has all malice and all guile and hypocrisies, and envies and all evil speakings. In fact, these five things are all plurals. This isn't just one thing. These are sort of things that we have to, in a sense, keep getting rid of that come into our lives. Envy. This is something we looked at when we did the series on happiness. We were looking at the seven mortal sins. If I might refresh your memory, quoted from the Devil's Dictionary, a book of cynical wit. It defines happiness as an agreeable sensation arising from contemplating the misery of another. Um, This, in fact, is a good definition for envy. That, well, the Germans have the word schadenfreude. The pleasure we take in the misfortune of others. We feel best when we succeed and others fail. And envy leads us to strategies to get back at others, which is the fifth thing on this list, that is slander of every kind. How do, get, how do we get rid of these things? Well, Peter tells us in the next verse, verse 2, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. To be honest with you, I have no idea why the translators use the word spiritual here in verse number two. Um, the word in Greek is logikos from the word logos. Um, King James has desire, desire the sincere milk of the word, which is better. The in New American Standard has 
long for the pure milk of the word. By the way, the King James and the New American Standard both have of the word, and the NIV, the ESV, and other translations do not. Um, So, again, I I think that the better word to be used is sincere uh, and not spiritual. I think it really throws us in an entirely different direction than what Peter intends. It has been suggested that we look to the word milk for a better or clearer understanding. But that presents its own problems, because two other places in the New Testament, we are told about people uh, and the milk that they are supposed to have. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Brothers, I could not address you as spiritual, but as worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. Uh, by the way, here the word spiritual in 1 Corinthians is the word we expect. Pneumatikos, I mean, from pneuma, uh, that's what we expect. Um, and then in Hebrews 5. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. In both places... Um, the use of teaching as milk is seen almost in a derogatory sense. It's almost a belittling. Oh, you guys are still babies. You still need milk. Um, Then what does Peter mean? Again, I think we have to go to the next verse in verse number three. Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. By this, I believe Peter means that his readers have come to faith. They have been converted They have been given new life. They are a part of the family of God. They have tasted the goodness of God and salvation. So in verse number two, when he talks about desiring the milk, the sincere milk like newborn babies, he is not belittling them, as I think Paul was in 1 Corinthians 3. I also think Paul wrote Hebrews 5, but that's a different subject. The point here is that they are to crave milk the sincere milk of the word, just as newborn babies crave milk. It is amazing that a newborn child knows little or nothing, but they know to crave milk. And this is what Peter is saying. So, what Peter is saying, it's it's a simile. He's just saying, you do this like babies do that. He is not saying, you guys are babies. He's not saying, you guys are immature and you need to grow up. He's simply using a comparison. The way that newborns crave milk, this is what you should do. You should crave the sincere milk of the word. If we had this verse alone, um, we might think that this is something we can do on our own. But this is not the case. We are to feed on the word. We are to gain strength. We are to get rid of malice and deceit, hypocrisy and the rest. Again, Peter is not suggesting that his readers are immature. What he's saying is, this is what it means to be a Christian. And now, having gone through the passage, I want to back up. Look at these two features. What is it that Peter, and I think this is foundational to his argument in this letter, conversion and the power of the word. Let's look at conversion first. In different ways already in this letter, Peter has written about conversion. If you look at verse number three of chapter one, 
In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. Um, Chapter 1, verse 23, for you have been born again. These we expect, but there's more. Our first verse today, verse number 22, now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth. In chapter 2, verse 1, rid yourselves of these things. And then in verse number 3, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. The last three may not seem appropriate to a discussion of conversion. In reality, they point to the fact that there is to be a breaking with the past. Usually when we think of conversion, we like being born again, the new birth, and things like that. But let's realize that when we come to faith, there is to be a breaking with the past. What does conversion refer to? What does it mean to be a Christian? I would suggest that you consider the following. First of all, conversion refers to both an event and a process. As with natural childbirth, there comes a point when the child is born. But let's not read too much into that because, and this is not an unimportant question in our society today, when does life begin? Certainly it's not just when the child is born. The child is alive in the womb. You may recall Paul's metaphor in Galatians chapter 4. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. So it isn't when the child is born, but there is a point at which life begins. We may not be conscious of it. The child in the womb, I don't think, is conscious. Oh, life has begun. But it doesn't change the reality that life has, in fact, begun. There has been a beginning. It is an event. But then there is a process that continues until the day of one's death. And thus, as we've done before, we can speak of already, not yet. Life has already begun, but it is not yet complete. Thus Peter writes of hope and inheritance and the coming of salvation. He says he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Salvation is not merely something we are waiting for. It is something toward which we are moving. Conversion must be considered a part of this process, an ongoing process. If you wish, ongoing conversion, transformation. The second thing I would have you consider is that conversion involves a reconstruction of how we view ourselves. That's why we have verse number 14. The evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. That's who you used to be. Verse number 18. You were not redeemed with perishable things, but with imperishable things. That is, as we look in the mirror, metaphorically, there's a question of who am I now and who was I? Who I am now, I'm to be an obedient child I'm someone who has been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ. Who I used to be is someone radically different. Someone who had evil desires, who was ignorant, and who followed an empty way of life handed down by my ancestors. So conversion also involves me understanding that I'm a different person. The third thing that I would have you consider is that conversion is a profoundly social act. 
if this were not the case, then what Peter writes at the beginning about being chosen strangers would make no sense at all. His readers are elect exiles that are scattered precisely because they have been converted. If they had not been converted, they would not be chosen strangers. Conversion has had a profound impact on their lives, and it has profound social consequences. As they no longer do what they used to do, and we would say the things that their neighbors still continue to do, in a sense, we pull away from that. We find that society also pulls away from us because we are no longer a part of them, and now we become strangers to them. We find that society not only pulls away, but may ostracize and ultimately persecute those who are Christians. The fourth thing I would have you consider is that conversion involves incorporation or inclusion into a new community. A new community that is marked by loving one another. There are other aspects as well of this new community. This community is a community that's taking off malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander of every kind. It is a community that is attempting not to conform to evil desires. And by the way, we need both the positive and the negative. We need to be getting rid of, but we also need to be loving one another. Can't be content to do one without the other. The language of family is crucial to what Peter argues here. We are to have sincere love for your brothers. This is to counter the business of being strangers. That is, that we are strangers to the world, but we are not to be strangers to each other. We're certainly not strangers to God because we are his children. By the way, just parenthetically, I don't know if you've caught this. Um, Someone mentioned it to me several Sundays ago that at the end of our service, um, when Audrey and Henry and Jack are up here and they sing to us responsibly, One of the things that we sing is, and I will be no stranger. It's like, wait a minute, Peter said that we are strangers. Well, in that song, it is saying that we are not strangers to each other or to God. We are part of the family of God. Another thing, parenthetically, something that I don't want to to belabor, but the gospel, I think, in our time is presented as you need to accept Jesus as your personal savior. And when someone is witnessing to another person, they're sharing the gospel, if you wish, inevitably they are told, oh, don't worry, you don't have to join anything. This is just something between you and God. Um, I understand what they're saying. And indeed, joining a church is not the same as becoming a child of God. But let's not... Let's not sugarcoat the truth. When you become a Christian, it means you become a part of the people of God. You don't simply become a Christian and you're on your own and you're on, your ticket is punched and you're going to heaven and it's great. And Well, wouldn't it be nice if you could sort of hang out with other people who believe the same way that you do? Uh, no. Conversion means coming into the family of God. Let's be careful that in an attempt to win somebody over to the gospel, we don't throw out the crucial aspect that becoming a child of God means becoming a part of the family of God. And the fifth thing that I have you consider, which leads to what I want to say next, is that new life grows out of and is centered in the word of God. There are three passages already that we've seen that deal with this in verses 10, 11, and 12, 
when Peter writes about the Old Testament prophets who spoke of the salvation that was to come. In verse 22, obeying the truth. Verse 25, the word of the Lord stands forever. This leads us to the second point. First is conversion. The second is the power of the word of God. One could make the argument that apart from the word of truth, there would be no process of growth. There would be no conversion, no salvation to be revealed. Look at verses 23 and, 20, uh, 23 and then 25. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. Verse 25, but the word of the Lord stands forever, and this is the word that was preached to you. There is a temptation to see these verses, I think, as parenthetical, almost as supporting what he's been saying all along. I think this is a mistake. They are, in fact, central. It is the word of God. It is the power of the word of God that brings these things into being. In verse 22, we read about the truth. In verse 2 of chapter 2, the sincere milk of the word. It is the word that was preached to the recipients of Peter's letter, the gospel of truth. They obeyed it, they continue to obey it, and that's why Peter writes to them that they do continue to obey it. It is through the word of God that we learn a new way of life, that we learn a new way of looking at the world, that we learn to see things as they truly are. It is through the word of truth that we are converted. And the result is not something that is temporary, like grass, like flowers, quoting from Isaiah 40, something that is eternal. The word of the Lord stands forever. The word of God, the good news, is living and it is everlasting. If believers have been given new birth through the word of God, then the life into which they have been reborn is unending and the love that we are to have for one another should endure as well. In short, what Peter is saying is that the word of God, the good news, is effective. It is powerful in generating new life, in cultivating new life, and in sustaining that new life. Apart from the word of God, there will be no conversion. There certainly will be no salvation. It is through the word that new birth is given. We are to live the word of truth. We are to set ourselves apart from the world by loving each other deeply and persistently. We must love each other and we must yearn for the word of God. And it is in the word that we grow up, that we grow into salvation. I don't think that I've said anything new today, anything that you've not heard before. But consider this. We live in an individualistic age, an age in which I think every generation does it. The gospel has been redefined to be something less than what it really is. The individual is seen as supreme, as sovereign. And so, in a consumerist model, the gospel is packaged and sort of presented to the individual as here, this is something you will want. This is a product you may want to look at and purchase. I would say that the dominant view of conversion in our world today is that of transaction. I say a prayer, 
God saves me, I'm going to heaven. And the idea of conversion as an event and a process, I think, is gone. Conversion as a redefining, a reconstructing of who you are. Conversion as coming into the family of God, I think, has been set aside. Because, let's face it, that in, in our society that just doesn't appeal to people. Somehow we want to package the gospel salvation as something that each individual can claim as his or her own and not have to ever associate with anyone ever again. We'll see each other when we get to heaven and, and then we'll be perfect and then we can stand each other. You know, but right now in this world, you know, it's hard to get along with people. So I'll be saved. I'll get saved. You get saved. Um, but that, that's all we have to do. If that is the view you have of salvation, then First Peter has very little to say to you. I would argue it has almost nothing to say to you. Oh, you'll read it and say, well, that sounds good and I'll try to do that in my life. But if you do not see the twin pillars here of conversion and the power of the word of God, then you will miss what Peter is saying in this book. I fear that as people read 1 Peter today, if they do in fact read it, they read it as individuals. And they sort of skim along the surface and they miss the profoundly deep things that Peter is saying. We belong to each other. We are brothers and sisters and we are to love each other. And we're to get rid of the things that we used to do. And it is through the word of God. By the way, within the transactional view, I think scripture becomes nothing more than a manual. It just becomes a manual. Um, it, it's not something that is alive or organic. Um, it has no movement to it. It's just, if ever you're in trouble, go to the Word and you'll find something. Over the years, I'm sure Jack could testify to this. You know, people call you up on the phone. I'm having this and such and such a situation. Can you recommend a passage of scripture that I can read? Um, yeah, all of it. I mean, it, it's the word of God. Okay, but in a transactional view, in a consumerist view, the Bible is nothing more than a manual. We used to have a man who attended here, Jim Quarles, and he seemed to be the exception to the rule because whenever he bought a new piece of equipment, he would read the manual. The rest of us, you know, we get something and we, I can figure this out, and we start thinking, and then it doesn't work, then we go and get the manual and try to figure out what we're supposed to do. If we do not see the Word of God as alive, if we do not see conversion as bringing us into each other's lives, then when Peter begins to write about what it means to be a Christian, we will be so far off. We'll be off tangent. So here at the beginning, in this first chapter and three verses of chapter two, Peter is sort of laying the foundation. This is what it means to be a Christian. These are the two things you need to keep in mind. The power of the word of God and what, in fact, conversion is. And then with that in mind, Peter will say, this is how you're supposed to live. You are chosen strangers, ostracized by society. This is how you're supposed to live. And the Lord willing, in the weeks to come, we will see what Peter has to say about this. Let's pray together.
Father, we begin by thanking you for your word, and yet immediately confessing that so often we are guilty of treating as a textbook, as a manual, not seeing it as something that is alive, through which you speak to us, if we would but listen. We are affected by the culture around us, and sadly I think it has robbed us of the wonder of what it means to be your child, what conversion involves, and the power of your word. May your spirit speak to our hearts in the days to come as we think through these things. May we be transformed by the renewing of our minds. I thank you that we could gather today to worship you. And as we leave this place, we hold up different individuals. We pray for our elder, Dan Nobley, that you would touch him. You would give the doctors wisdom as to what needs to be done. Give him peace. Give us peace as we are almost overwhelmed by hearing this news. Restore his health. We pray for Joy and Toby and Jack as they are away. You would give them peace as well. Comfort them. Comfort us. And may we show our love to one another as brothers and sisters. May we love each other deeply. Persistently. It's only possible by your spirit and the power of your word. Again, I thank you that we could gather to worship you today. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand, please? We'll sing the doxology together.